You know what? Pete Forcelli, Bronx, New York. He's on a protective scene. Him and I have a lot of uh, a lot of similarities, except I grew up in New Jersey, the beautiful Garden State. And I don't really have that accent anymore. But I tell you one thing, if, if Pete was telling me if he gets in an elevator with someone, he's saying, hey, what's going on? How you doing? I'm the same way. And Pete, I, you know, welcome to the show, brother. It's good to be here. I like talking to people who have done kind of, you know, done the right thing. Did the right thing. And one thing I like about you is you did the right thing and it didn't cost you nearly as much as some of the people we were talking about. Like, man, when you become a whistleblower, it's not an easy path to go down. And I want people to understand that you can have light at the end of the tunnel as well. So, Pete, welcome to the show, brother. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. NYPD, uh, ATF. I mean, you've had a, a heck of a career for, you know, that was a 90s, almost what, 30 years probably, right? It was almost, well, it was 35 years. I started wow. with the NYPD in, in uh, January of 87, and I just retired from law enforcement in um, in October of, um, not just the one that passed, the one before that. So 35 years, it was a great run. Uh, had its ups and downs though, brother. The how, You know, I was reading your bio and I was reading a couple of newspaper articles and stuff like you. Anybody, please take a look at Pete's background too. He's doing, he's doing a lot of different things with talking, writing and everything. But still, I took a look at your background in the housing department mm-hmm. in the 80s in New York. Holy crap. Jason, I'm going to tell you something. And again, you know, I know you told people to look up my background. But, you know, I, I don't really do social media much, but I do LinkedIn. Um, why I had a LinkedIn profile is a different story. Uh, you know, uh, came after some whistleblowing. But um, the reality is, if the housing police never merged with the New York City Transit Police and the NYPD, I would still be a housing cop. That was the best job I ever had. Talk about job satisfaction. And it's weird because you hear all of this demonization of police right now. I, I worked in an area where – People weren't white. I, I knew the people that lived in the community. They knew me. I knew their kids. Um, I, I certainly, you know, wasn't a social worker. I mean, if you were doing something wrong, you were going to get locked up. And if, if you fought back, you were going to get, you know, what, what you had coming to you within the, the parameters of the law, obviously. But there was a respect. And it, look, even most of the people I arrested, I'd say 99% of them, if I were to run into them in a bar, and it, and it actually happened one day at my daughter's baptism party, I ran into a guy I arrested who, uh, you know, you didn't know how it was going to go, big guy. You offered to buy me a beer. Um, it's because you had that respect from the community and, and, you know, but you had to give it to get it. So, but if, if we never merged, I, I would have never, ever left that department. Um, yeah, when, Ru- when Rudy Giuliani merged it into the, um, NYPD, we refer to it as the hostile takeover. It was a it was a dark day for a lot of housing cops that just were just salt of the earth good people who who I loved working with, frankly. That almost sounds like the merger. Like, so I was former U.S. Customs Special Agent, and then we merged and became Homeland Security, and that was almost like the merging with INS, probably. Uh, interesting times, but yeah, the housing department for me, man. Like growing up, I was like I. You know, I, I probably grew up about 50 miles, not 50 miles, but 50 minutes from New York City up in a really small town in Jersey called Blairstown. And I was always wanted to get into law enforcement. And that's one of the departments I was looking at. I was like, ah, oh, housing, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's a way to get in. I didn't know it was such a great job, though. That must be because now it's almost like 
not community policing like the old school community policing with the broken windows crap, but like real community policing, like being there with the community. So that must have really kind of affected your whole career trajectory, though, because you're there with people. Yeah, you're working a beat alone in a project, you know, and look, there's some wonderful people that live there. There's some bad people that live there, too. But, you know, what you learn there is, um, you know, that being able to talk to people is the most important weapon you have. You know, you're de-escalating situations, you're relating to people, you know, the gun, you know, you need a gun, you need the nightstick, you, you hope to never use it. Um, but the reality is, you know, the ability to talk to people is everything. And, and candidly, I think it was that that actually helped me later on in my career to become, you know, a, a decent detective and investigator is because you got to talk to people. I mean, you're sitting in a room with some of the worst people that you'll ever meet. Um, you know, they're not intimidated by you. They're not afraid of your badge. They, you know, especially the ones that have been around a little bit, you got to get to be able to relate to them and, and to have a conversation with them and, and, and to show mutual respect. So, you know, it was, it was really those, those early days as a cop riding around in those orange and blue police cars that, um, that I would say, you know, set my course for me, really. I tell you, you know, that I call it cultural geography is getting to know the different cultures. It's one thing that's really lacking in a lot of the police training, a lot of like the police culture now is like the humanizing the badge thing is it's to me, a humanizing the badge is, Hey, you go talk to people. You get out of your car, you walk around, you talk to people. Humanizing the badge to me isn't like TikToks and social media and all this other stuff. Humanizing it is getting out there and doing exactly what you did in the beginning of your career. I think as feds, a lot of us, you know, me, I was lucky. I, you know, I was in the military, then border patrol, and then I was became a special agent. I had a lot of interactions with different people, a lot of different people here and there, but I still didn't have that street cop feeling, that street cop of getting out there and talking with people. I think that's really lacking in the in the feds. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you you brought up a really good point. You talked about getting out of the car. That's a big one too, because I mean, you know, what you see in a lot of cities is you see police. They ride in. They deal with a nine one one call. They ride out. Um, you know, when you when you see them in their car, sometimes when they have downtime, they're just kind of sitting in their car doing whatever, listening to the radio. Um, you know, we were encouraged to actually get out of our car between those radio runs and talk to people, you know, and, and one of the things that bothers me about policing now, and and I talk about this broadly, and it's not every department is, you know, community policing worked, but it was kind of misconstrued into the social work policing. You know, we shouldn't have been doing the social worker part. Uh, I would agree. Um, but, we, we, you know, cops should be like Robert Peel said, a part of the community. You know what I mean? And and when you're out there talking to people and getting to know them, even if you don't necessarily live in that neighborhood, you're getting to know folks. But what happened is community policing was great. You know, people bought into it and it was working in a lot of places. It worked in New York City to a, to a larger degree than people realize. Then all of a sudden, another shiny ball comes. It's intel-led policing. So it's like we have this tendency of abandoning what works to chase all of these new trends. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't embrace the technology or look at some of these other things, but I would say that those things should be supplementing the, uh, you know, the stuff that we did, not, not replacing it. But I see it. I, I saw it in ATF too. There's some, there's some new technology will come up and everybody's abandoned ship. We're going this way. No, no, no. That's let's, let's use our heads here. You know, if you had stuff that worked, hold on to it, but let's see how these new things fit into that. But that's, I've seen it. In, in, you know, in my former agency, I've seen it in other agencies where it's like, no, they all want to chase the shiny new ball. It's kind of sad. Yeah, it's sad. I'm hoping that the more and more people are learning about new techniques, that they're not losing those old techniques, just like you said. And But 
you know, we're coming up to a certain thing in the Fed right now. It's like so many people got hired right around 9-11, 2000. Mm. And so many of us are retiring now. Yeah. And so there's a whole huge hiring push right now again, like it was back then. And we're hoping that some people sticking around for a little while can push on that knowledge. Now you were there like, right. You know, the big, the big push for the feds. Yeah. I, well, I came on because I had been working with the feds when I was a detective in New York for a few years and I just liked to work better, frankly, but you bring up a good point. Again, you, you're full of good points today. Um, when I came on the job as a cop, right. Um, I worked with people who had a lot of time on the job. Um, they taught me when I became a detective in, in one of the squads I was first sent to was, uh, the 45th precinct detective squad in the Bronx. It covers an area called Throg's neck. It's a quiet place as far as the Bronx goes. Um, you know, most of the murders there were dump jobs, which was cool because it was challenging. It wasn't like, you know, people who knew each other really required you to dig in a little bit deeper. But I was working with guys who were around in the Serpico days and, you know, they were clean. They weren't fired. But I mean, the, the knowledge that they had, 30 years of knowledge was like, you know, at first when I showed up there, I was 27 years old. The next youngest guy I worked with was 53. I was like, I got nothing in common with these guys. Like, I really thought, I, you know, I was kind of pissed off for lack of a better term. I said, this is going to suck. Um, in hindsight, what a gift it was to be there with all of that knowledge that they were able to pass down to me. You know, they didn't want to go out and chase people down. They were happy to hand me the more complicated cases and teach me how to work them. Um, that's That was awesome. But to your point, what's going on now where you have the older folks, they're, they're retiring when they're eligible. They're not staying past that time. The knowledge transfer is hurting law enforcement. And there's, there's really no reason for folks to stay anymore, especially in today's climate where, where the police and, and law enforcement in general is demonized. So it's like, hey, I, I got my 20. I can get out. I'm running. And so you don't have these 35-year, 40-year guys like the ones I learned from, which which really hurts. Yeah, I'm, I should, you know, part of me says, hey, stay in and, and, and see if you could do more. But then part of me is like, hey, you know, I got to get out. It's time. It's time to move on. And maybe you can do the knowledge transfer other ways. You can do podcasts. There you go. You know, that's one way to put on it. If You got to learn. And that's what I would say to anybody getting into this career is get out there, get in the street, talk to people, but also continuously learn. And, you know, one of your jobs later on, I saw was deputy assistant director over training and uh, was it training and leadership, right? Training and professional development. So, yeah, yeah. Leader, leadership programs, training. And, and it was funny because – I didn't expect to end my career there. I was not an academic. Anybody who who knows me would absolutely tell you that that's the case. But one of the things, I was kind of tired at the end, you know, 35 years. By the time I got there, I was like 32 years in, um, was to go down to the academy and speak to the new fresh faces that hadn't been ground down by the politics and the drama. And to your point, though, that's what that, those were the things I would get on my soapbox about is this, if the day that you think you know everything in this in this profession, that's the day you need to go away because this is a constant, um, you know, a, a profession that requires constant learning. You know what I mean? The other thing is I, I used to get on the soapbox about the importance of interviewing because I, I what I see now is for some folks, interviewing is like a dying art. Because yeah. our, our younger folks have gotten so used to trying to solve cases through technology that the thought of sitting in a room on the other side of a table and asking confrontational questions terrifies them. And I, I would watch people like they would try to find any other way to solve a case besides getting in that interview room. But, you know, I mean, it, it's interviewing is a perishable skill. So if you're not using it, 
you lose it. So I would go down to the, to the academy and tell people, because, you know, we had some glamorous parts of ATF, our SWAT team, and our undercover program. So you have the young agents, and they would, they would come out of the academy. They want to be an undercover, or they want to be a SWAT guy. And I would just try to preach to them the importance of be a case agent first and really learn the job before you decide to be one of those other two things, or more importantly, before you decide to promote and try to lead other people doing things that you perhaps have never done yourself. Because humility is perhaps, in my opinion, the most important trait that a leader has. You know, I mean, if, if you don't have that, you come in arrogant, you're going to piss your people off. You're not going to be a very good leader. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And, you know, when you were talking about going to the academy and talking to people, so I went, you know, I probably one of those people, you get to that point, I'm, I'm 50. I don't feel like my life's over with by any means. But I'm like, I still want to have my foot in the door. So I went down and I took the uh, the reserve test with the prospect day for the Metrop Metropolitan Police Department down in D.C. And I was in there. I was in there with a bunch of, you know, I was probably the only reserve guy that was going for the reserves. Everybody else was, you know, fresh face coming there to become a cop in D.C. And I remember like just sitting there and listening to them and how excited they were. I mean, a lot of them, this, this is their first cop job. And they were super excited. And I forgot that feeling. You remember that feeling when you first got the job or you're going to take the test and you're like, wow, man, this is it. Yeah. Well, what for us, feeling? the housing police, the NYPD and the transit police all took the same test. And what happened was the day that you reported, because I, I took the test, I was 16 and a half years old. You were allowed to take the test Holy at 16 crap. and a half years old. You couldn't get hired until you were 20. So I was barely 20 when I got the job. And it's funny because there's a big auditorium and everybody's floating into this auditorium and you had to show your, 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 you know, your score, your card, your list number. And they stopped me and they go, Oh no, you need to go up to the, I think it was the 13th floor. It's like, Oh yeah, I didn't know what happened. So that's, that's when I found out I was going to be a housing cop instead of an NYPD cop. But to your point, I remember day one of the Academy, you're mustering, you know, you're standing there, you're doing dress, right dress and everything. And I'm standing in formation and I had a big smile on my face and it was because I was just thrilled to be there. And then the, the, the class, you know, he was an officer, but he was like kind of a pseudo drill instructor. Man, he, he tore into me for having a big wipe that smile off your face. But, man, I was just thrilled to be there, you know. So eh. it's it's still the excitement still there for the job. The people that say the job is dead, uh, you know, maybe it is for them. But there's still a lot of people that want to get in this job for the right reason. Yeah. And, you know, reading through some of the articles about you and stuff like that. And there's so much similarities between you and a lot of other different people that, and you know, the, the name whistleblower is sometimes not looked at as a, a very positive name to have or label or anything, but there's always something about, you know, writing wrongs. And, you know, when you were working on, you know, later on exonerating people who have been wrongly convicted, that's a huge thing, man. That's, that's a, that's a tough step for someone in the law enforcement field to take a step back and go, huh, maybe not everything is black and white. Maybe not everything's good and bad. And maybe sometimes on our side of the, on our side of the wall, there's something crappy going on. So this was before, after you blew the whistle with fast and fury. So you started looking at exoneration type what? cases. The truth is I never really went to look at exonerations. Um, some was before um, and some was after. Like with the first exonerations I was involved in happened in the Bronx. 
and I was working as an ATF agent on a case that involved, it was a home invasion gone bad where they, they murdered a guy. Uh, we had DNA. I mean, it was a solid case. And in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, they're really big on proffering. I know you know what proffering is because you're um, a lot of the listeners might not. But that's when the defendant comes in to talk to you with their attorney and the prosecutor's there and they're afforded some some degree of immunity for everything they tell you. So we arrested a guy. His name was Stephen. Big guy. I mean, intimidating guy to be in a room with. Um, but I was straight with him when I locked him up, told him how things were going to work. And so, you know, uh, in the end, he and his lawyer decided to come in. And he admitted to six murders that he did. So, okay, as you know, when somebody talks about things they do, you don't just take that at face value. You then go down and run down those leads. So I went and, uh, you know, and pulled the six files on the murders that he discussed. And then looking through the files, two of them had been closed by arrests. So now, you know, you're, you're going back and looking through the, the information that's in those folders and you're confronting him with it, you know, and trying to figure out what happened. And one of them was a, a straight up misidentification case. The other was sort of a frame up job by some informants who pointed fingers at someone other than him, not because they were protecting him per se, but they were actually protecting somebody else. So it was a matter of running down the leads now because, you know, if if my guy's lying to me, there's a problem putting him on the witness stand, right? If, if he's telling the truth, there's another problem. There's people in jail that don't belong there. So really it, it turned into now taking my investigation uh, into him and the murders he committed and having like peripheral investigation. So it was weird because the first one we went after was a guy was killed in an elevator and the Bronx district attorney's office was like, Nope, we're, we're going full bore. We're, we're going to prosecute this guy. This guy's name was Lacey little. So we invited the Bronx district attorney's office down. They interviewed our defendant. They're like, nah, we, we don't believe him. Um, you know, and the weird thing is this guy, if he's lying to us, he's going to get sentenced to life. They can rip up his cooperation agreement. So he's got no reason to lie. So I was kind of pissed off by the DA's office's stance. And they got hung up on the guy that you're saying that he's saying he was involved with is taller than the person that we're looking at. So I was like, really height. I mean, the first thing they teach you in the Academy is when someone has a gun in their hand, they look a lot bigger than they are. Right. So um, long story short, we were able to pull some of the data from the file and there was information in there. Who, who supplied the gun, who, um, who ordered the murder. So we went and backtracked all of those parts of the case. And not, it's funny because the, the one key part was the guy who provided the gun. The NYPD said they couldn't find them. Well, I left a business card in his door and flicked another one under his door. And 15 minutes later, he called me. And I'm like, well, so, okay. anyway, we put the puzzle piece together. The DA's office still wasn't going to relent. So then we went and found the guy who was the trigger puller was part of this, you know, um, murder for hire. And um, he's in prison. He's about to get out on a burglary. Six months he's sitting in there and he confessed to the whole thing. So we arrested him on the spot to kind of twist the Bronx DA's office's arm because how are you going to charge someone else with a murder when we just arrested a guy for the same murder? So we forced their hand and we got him out. And then um, we pulled one of the other murder files. And that time, the district attorney was a lot more reasonable. His name was Dan McCarthy, gentleman he passed on. Um, he just said, hey, Pete, would you mind if my investigator came with you and did all your interviews? I'm like, yeah, this isn't about me. <laughs> Let's do it. And and that individual said, um, we interviewed him up in prison up in Massachusetts. He's like, yeah, this, um, you know, I told the cops that day that the, they arrested the wrong guy. Um, but two kids that were on bicycles picked out this guy and said he's the shooter. So it was a Miss ID case. That ADA was great. That person was out of jail. 
who's, by the way, in serving time for murder, was out of jail within 48 hours, which is wow. actually impressive. So the other exonerations did, though, come after the whistleblowing, you know, and many years later. But the first two, again, I wasn't setting out to disprove a case. Truthfully, I was kind of trying to prove my case. Um, but once you find out that someone innocent sitting in jail, I can't think of a worse thing. So we just we just ran down all the leads and ran it to ground. And that so that's two of the eight. That's you know that's something so many people are passionate about now, and I think they should. The system doesn't always get it right. We know that. Yeah. And that's one thing I want to talk about now is whistleblowing. And I mean, everybody listening to pod, the Protectors podcast, or you Google my name, you're going to see probably the first thing that pops up is Jason Piccolo whistleblower. Now. I did it. I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't a leaker. I, I did it the right way. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, and assume you did the same thing. What, what brought you to become, to take that step? And I want to know what was your emotions like? Cause I know what it was like for me. I, you know, I was talking about kids and it was just like, I had to do it. I, I couldn't just sit back and go, well, you know, someone else will do it. Well, it was actually a, a several years worth of things that led to it. Now, first thing, Fast and Furious is what I was one of the whistleblowers on, but I, I wasn't involved in that case. And I didn't even know what was going on in the inner workings of that case at that time. Um, but Brian Terry had died, uh, killed with guns that were somehow trafficked in that investigation. And uh, uh, John Dodson, who was a, an agent in another group, who I really didn't know. I, I, I think we may have said hello to each other at the range or something, but I didn't know John. Uh, John blew the whistle, and um, we were at. I was a supervisor at the time, and what happened was I had heard that the U.S. Attorney's Office was upset with John. I uh, didn't know for what, and then there were rumblings that they were considering um, indicting John Dodson. But for years prior to that, we were bringing gun cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office that were solid cases. And some of them, if they happened in New York or New Jersey, would have literally been the top story on the news. I'll give you an example. There was one where, uh, it's my first weekend in Phoenix, we did a car stop based on some information we got from a gun dealer, and we pull over a car, it's heading down I-10, um, going to Mexico, and it had 13 AK-47 variant rifles in it. Um, we pitched it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll indict it later. Let them go." Now in New York, we would have arrested them on the spot, taken them to, to you know, to the uh, pretrial, written up a complaint. Um, there, it was like, "Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll look at it later." So this this is the kind of scenario that went on again and again and again for years. And we had we had some cases where we would send the case jacket to the U.S. Attorney's Office, waiting for them. To, to decide whether or not they were going to take the case where they'd literally wait so long that a statute of limitations would run out. So here, you know, um, probably at, by the time this happens about almost four years into my time as a supervisor there, and we had dozens and dozens of real hardcore trafficking cases that were declined. And now I'm hearing that the U S attorney's office is going to indict a guy who blew the whistle. So that's was kind of the last straw for me. And again, I didn't know what was going on in the group, but I found that to be morally reprehensible that the U.S. Attorney's Office would talk about indicting a guy after he blows the whistle on on the, the complete shit show that they were running there. So that's when I called up um, Senator Grassley's office and I was like, hey, listen, you know, the guy who's talking to you, because um, they ATF, the Attorney General, Eric Holder at the time, DOJ, they were all saying he was lying. I'm like, he's not lying. And I said, I got a lot of things I'll be willing to tell you, but I need you to subpoena me. So they did. And I just I spent eight hours in a deposition talking about all the things uh, that led up to Fast and Furious. A lot of the cases that were declined 
we would wind up taking to the state. Some of them made international headlines. One was a, a, a case involving 50 caliber rifles. One of them was used to kill a Mexican military commander in front of a daycare center in Juarez. Um, we, we had that whole network taken down. We wound up having to take it to the state. Another was a, a dirty gun dealer who um, admitted that about a thousand of his guns and, and most gun dealers, like the federally licensed dealers, they're clean and they don't like the way they're portrayed in the media. So this is the first time in my career I saw an actually dirty licensed gun dealer. We infiltrated him. We had undercovers. Post-arrest, post-Miranda. Yeah, about a thousand of my guns made it to Mexico. Who gives a fuck? You know, he didn't care. These cases were all declined for prosecution, right? And, and the reason that they would use was invariably, well, the guns are in Mexico. That means the body of the crime is in Mexico, which is not true. The forms that they fill out is the body of the crime. But then you take it one step further. In Fast and Furious, they were letting the guns go to Mexico. So wait a minute. You couldn't prosecute cases because the guns were in Mexico, but now the strategy is to let the guns go to Mexico? So that's that's uh, it was the final straw. So that's why I, I, um, I reached out and said, hey, um, hit me with a subpoena and I'm an open book. And, and they did. And, and, um, it was funny because there was, um, you might've heard of a, an agent named Jay Dobbins. Yeah. He wrote the book. Um, yeah, he infiltrated the hell's angels. Jay blew the whistle and, uh, and they, they, I mean, he got filleted. So, um, the same day that I got subpoenaed, I had run into Jay and he heard the story and he goes, Hey dude, watch your back. Cause they're going to come for you. And, and he was right. You know, they, they are sharpening knives. They do. Thank God for Senator Grassley, man. I hope he never retires. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what. I, I, w when I got into this, I was told to stay apolitical. And I spoke to Senator Grassley's staff was at the deposition. Uh, Daryl Issa's staff, who is a Republican from California. Senator Patrick Leahy's staff and um, Elijah Cummings' staff. And when the shit started getting sideways with me, Grassley's people never hesitated to answer the phone. Cummings's people uh, were nice; they were polite. Leahy wouldn't even acknowledge that I had that I was alive. Um, Cummings, like I said, was was supportive, and ISIS people were okay too. But yeah, I, I really completely lost respect for Patrick Leahy. The disdain that he had for for us whistleblowers in that case was was palpable. Yeah, the um, you know Grassley's office. Whenever I emailed them or anything, it was like boom. They'll, they'll call you. It's not that it's like, ah, oh, you wait like a day or two and hopefully get back to you. No, it was like, boom. Yeah. And my, my contact at the office of special counsel was actually really solid as well. Yeah. And it, yeah. And as soon as keep politics out of it, man, whenever I talk about the kids and stuff like that or whistleblowing, I just, Hey, listen, as much as it sucks and you've seen it and Jay Dobbins has seen it and every, every whistleblower, I'd say 90% of whistleblowers have seen it. Not everybody is on the up and up and it sucks. It sucks being dedicated to an ideal for, you know, decades and decades and know that not everybody feels the same way you do about doing the right thing. Right. Yeah, no, it's unfortunate. And look, the other thing is, you know, looking in hindsight, um, I went through about three years of different OIG investigations and this and that. You know, I was accused of perjury. And it's funny because the, the, when I testified at the open hearing, um, it was televised on C-SPAN and whatnot. Nobody watches C-SPAN, so it's not like I became famous. But, uh, you know, while that was going on, ATF's headquarters had a command post 
um, to monitor because they, you know, again, they were kind of not wanting to admit that these guns made it to Mexico and that cops or agents rather weren't doing car stops. So, but the chief of the criminal division for the Phoenix U.S. Attorney's Office accused me of perjury in front of my entire command staff while I'm while I'm testifying while it's going on, and it was funny because. Um, when I did call Grassley's office, it might have been some of the same people, Jason Foster, Brian Downey, um, just, I mean, they, um, they they wound up subpoenaing Patrick Cunningham. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Yeah. Well, he, pl- he pled the fifth and resigned. So, I mean, they had no problem throwing around, you know, false allegations, but, you know, they certainly wouldn't, you know, raise their hand, take an oath and, and sit there and tell the truth, which really was an eye opener for me because I, I had always held the department of justice and the people that I worked with and, you know, at, at, at such, in such high esteem. So it was, it was an eye opener to see that not everybody shares the same morals in government, you know, that a lot of it's circle the wagons, protect the boss, um, you know, and you know, that, that for me was the, the most disheartening part of going through that whole process. And then the other thing is <laughs> prior to that, I had worked on hundreds of murders. I had arrested a thousand people. You pointed it out. You become the whistleblower. Everything that you did before that kind of doesn't matter. You're you're a whistleblower now. That's you know, <laughs> it's it's funny how the dynamic changes. Yeah, it's weird trying to get jobs with that name too. It's like people Google you and like you know back maybe back in the day you could be a whistleblower and nobody would know it, but now with the power of Google and everything else, it's like yeah, you know, good luck trying to get a job, yeah. and and especially trying to do anything within the government, which is a very interesting aspect of it. Yeah, but that you know that's another area where I got to say I, I I can't you know what I b- before you go on I cannot get over the titles you had post whistleblowing special agent in charge deputy assistant director so I'm I'm glad they actually said hey you know what it's not this guy it's the whole system yeah but you know where I got to give credit and you know and I, I always say this because it's important and I wish ma- I hope managers in government are listening to this podcast when I got that subpoena. I had to hand it to my special agent in charge. I was a GS-14 group supervisor, first line supervisor. I had like three and a half years in that position. And my special agent in charge was a guy named Tom Brandon, former Marine, polished guy. Um, And so I hand him the subpoena. And he's like, "Um, listen, he's like, this is um, is a big deal. He said, they're going to throw fastballs at you. He said, you're going to have to hit him out of the park. And I was shitting my pants. Um, Because again, I had heard what happens to whistleblowers. So Tom digs into his pocket and he pulls out a challenge coin. It was a St. Michael challenge coin. He said, I want you to have this. And he said, as long as you're telling the truth, I have your back. Run to the truth. That was his exact words. So I did. I never made it personal. I never made it political. I never attacked the agency. I attacked more along the the, the situation, the problems. Um, So... DOJ, there were some folks there that came at me, the U.S. attorney, the U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona literally sent out an email to his entire staff that said, anyone running into Pete Fraselli, even if it's on a Saturday, having coffee with his family is to report it through their chain of command to me immediately. So, you know, I mean, I I had made enemies, but Tom Brandon, and then there was another gentleman who was brought in because the command staff in Phoenix got removed. So Tom Atterbury, another gentleman who was uh, brought in as my ASAC. Those guys never flinched. So even though the DAG was very unhappy with me at the time, I know Holder wasn't thrilled because this happened. And I'm not saying he was involved or knew. He may have, may not have. I don't know. Again, I didn't I didn't testify to speculation. I kept it to the facts that I knew about. Um, but they wanted me gone. And it, they, they, it was funny because they were especially upset with me because, in, in their words, hey, you're a manager. 
you should know better. Like, is it like the agents blow the whistle? Well, you know, they, they, it's like, come on, you know, that's not how it's supposed to work. But, but Tom Brandon uh, and Tom Atterbury, and then eventually B. Todd Jones, who became the director nominee, those guys never, you know, because they knew that I wasn't making it personal. They never made it personal. So once all the dust settled, um, they allowed me to move on with my career. So, I mean, the reality is, is I got to thank them as much as anybody. And the other thing I'll say to people who might, you know, be on that fence and think about blowing the whistle. Um, look, you took an oath not to your organization. You didn't take an oath to the president or, or any particular member of Congress, or if you're a local cop, your police chief or governor, you took an oath to the people that you represent. Um, you know, it's, don't make it personal. Don't don't make it political. If you blow the whistle, stick to the facts. It's not you versus the agency. It's you versus the issue. And maybe, maybe if you do that, you might, you might survive. Um, but as you know, some people pure of heart, go there and do that and still wind up losing their careers anyway. So it never for a second gets lost on me that I was blessed and how I, how I made it through that whole mess. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm glad. Uh, one thing, one piece of advice is that, you know, that oath, what you said right there, remember the oath you took and keep to the facts. I would tell people my advice to a whistleblower is keep a timeline and keep track. You know, you know, you mentioned about the, um, the attorney, uh, whatchamacallit, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, saying yeah. if you encounter this guy, write that down. Keep track of all the emails because if they do retaliate against you, you're going to want to have evidence. You're going to want to have a timeline, and you're going to want it to be the facts. Feelings are great. You can have feelings all day long. You can talk to your significant other or whoever, your friends. Talk about your feelings all day long. But when it comes down to the legal process, make sure you have the facts. When you blow the whistle, have the facts emails, anything. Just keep track of everything going on. I don't care if you need a notebook or if you have to email yourself. One thing I used to do is I used to always email myself because I'd always have a timestamp on it. And I would keep a running timeline of everything going on on like three different devices. So if one thing's corrupted, thumb drives, everything, but keep track of everything and keep notes because you'll forget. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent advice. But again, you know, don't make it because I've seen it happen and it happened with some of the Fast and Furious whistleblowers that were there with me. Some of them made it me versus the agency or me versus the people that made mistakes. Um, that's that's, you know, that's not a, a good recipe for for how to handle it. It's it's you and the issues. You know what I mean? Um, so, but yeah, everything you just said is spot on too. I mean, documentation is everything because it, look, I had the OIG investigating me. I had to go to the OSC, I had Congress. I mean, there were three different investigations going on at the same time, not necessarily directed at me. Some of them were, but just directed at the issues. So, and the other thing I have found with, with OIGs, which is very interesting is, um, you know, if, with them, if it's not in writing, it's, it's. It didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, I was sitting there talking to them about things that the conversations I had, well, there's nothing to document that. So I was like, well, there's nothing that documents that I went to the bathroom this morning, but I certainly went to the bathroom. This morning. You know what I mean? So uh, uh, your point is is valid and that uh, the more stuff that you have that's tangible, that's in writing that you can hand to somebody, um, you know, the better off you're going to be. You got to you gotta watch your six too. As much as you, you – if you're new in your career, old in your career, if you've been in a career for a day or 500 days or 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and you don't realize that some people do bad things, some people in positions of power do bad things, and a lot of it's self-serving things as well. 
may not necessarily be that bad, but when it comes to the end of the day, when you mentioned circle the wagons, how many times have we heard circle the wagons? You know, it's always circle the wagons. Listen, when you're talking about careers, uh, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Well, look, there's another thing that I've seen and I'm sure you've seen and people listening are probably going to relate to this is that a lot of people that go into leadership, go into it for the right reasons and they want to lead and they're pure of heart. And then there's others who chase it for other reasons, whether it's the increase in pay or some for the power. But what some folks lose sight of is the higher up you move in an organization, the more eyes are on you. So, so I think some people go fall into this salt, this, you know, false sense of that, you know, that now because they're in a better or higher position that they're smarter than the people under them, man, that is, that is just a foolish way to look at things because there's some smart people and they're watching your every move and not all of them are your friends. And especially if you're out there doing things that are unethical or, 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 or even just sneaky, I mean, not, not treating people fairly, you know? Um, so, you know, I used to say that to people all the time, the higher you go up, the more eyes are on you. So it's not power, it's responsibility that you're getting when you take these jobs. So if you think you're taking a position for power, you're out of your mind. The other piece of advice is don't leak information. Do it the legal way. I always say I'm a legal whistleblower. I went to the office of special counsel you can go to your senator's office. You can go to certain areas, but do your research. Do your research. Do your research, and then do it legally. Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, brother. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking about this stuff. And what do you got going on now? Not I've seen you on a lot of different podcasts. You know, some really good ones out there too, man. Yeah, and it's weird because I never sought any of them out. Um, I think you know it's, uh, people are intrigued by the Fast and Furious stuff and the. Um, you know, and, and the uh, exonerations and, you know, 9-11. But um, yeah, look, I still love the profession. I, I you know, we have a 57-year-old um, mandatory cutoff for 1811s. So I guess uh, vicariously, I'm still in the game because I get to talk about things. But it's been, it's been nice to talk to people, you know, who are interested in, in, you know, my past. And, you know, to share the, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, Maybe somebody who's younger, newer in their career is watching this and might pick up on something. So in a way, it's paying it forward, too, that, you know, to pass knowledge and experience on to the next generation. Because I can't do it sitting in the squad room anymore or, or you know, sitting in an ATF office. So here I am doing it on the World Wide Web. <laughs> I got to reiterate, too, what you said, too, throughout your career is interviewing people, getting out there and talking to people. Anybody getting into this career, this profession, get used to talking to people. How many times can you put someone behind bars or even like just do anything behind a computer? You got to get there and talk to people. Yeah. 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 No, hundred percent. Look, I preaching to the choir too. I'm sure I, when I was a first line supervisor, I saw it again as a GS 15. I saw it again when I was an executive, you'd see people texting, right? And you'd be like, Oh, okay. And then you see somebody pop out of a cubicle and you find out that they were texting a guy two cubicles away to see if they were available for lunch instead of walking the eight feet to the other cubicle opening and said, Hey man, you want to grab lunch? So it's weird that we've become so used to communicating, um, you know, electronically that folks are losing the ability to have conversations. And when you, when you can't have even regular conversations, having the tough ones becomes nearly impossible, you know? Oh, and have those tough ones, brother. Well, Pete, I appreciate you coming on and talking, man. And you're always welcome back on the Protectors, and I'm looking forward to buying you a cup of coffee soon. Yeah, sounds good, brother. We're neighbors. No, my pleasure, Jason. It's good meeting you.